Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. G'day everyone and welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. And this week we're going to talk about, well, a whole bunch of things, but centred on this idea of art as therapy. Led by our guest, Liv Robinson, who I met at a launch function for a good friend of ours, Greg Wallace, Mm -hmm. also a previous guest who runs Connected By. Greg had moved into his new facility down on the beach And as part of that, he had a little art show. Veterans art, those people that have been inspired by art as a form of therapy. And there was this lady there who I started talking to, and she herself had an incredible story. Raised in the UK, encountered some problems with eating disorders and mental health, struggling to find her identity and discover her own sexuality. And there were pretty much only two constants in her life. One, sport, and the other was art. And the more I got immersed in this story, the more I found it was absolutely inspiring. And Liv will talk about how she turned away from Liv version 1.0 and became Liv version 2.0. Yeah, and certainly in my own personal experience, um, art is just a wonderful way of sort of clearing your head. I find it very meditative um, and Liv's going to talk about how she used those sort of characteristics uh, to address some some really big issues and, and how she's been able to leverage off that uh, to, to now do what she's doing now, which is bringing her wonderful art to a whole range of different people and also promoting the, the concept that it is a fantastic tool to help deal with everything, you know, from the, the sort of day-to-day stressors through to some pretty big life issues. And most recently, she's been working for an ultra-high net worth individual as a wellness advisor, and she'll talk about how she breaks a few rules and how she incorporates art into a pillar for teamwork. Let's get on with the show. I stand outside in the rain I feel it burn my skin Or shouldn't it cool me down And not hurt me I look at the people inside I want to be like them Or should it really be so hard for me? And I hate myself for feeling like this Why can't my mind just stop? Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Tim. And joined in our tiny little studio. For the first time, I think we've had three people in this studio, Liv Robinson. Hello, guys. Thank you. It's very small. I can vouch for that. It really is weird. We're about to have Mark Wales in here, who's about three times your size. Oh <laughs> this could be awkward. Crazy. In fact, his head's about eight times your size. That's going to be the problem. When we built this, it is impeccably soundproofed, but also... Oxygen tight. So I'll try not to use oxygen. We, we literally Mark. have about two cubic meters of air <laughs> to get yeah. this thing done. 
And you'll recognise this from previous lives as a shower cubicle, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is what it used to be. Yeah, yeah quite yeah. literally the broom closet. Amazing. Yeah. But well, yeah, nothing but the best for our guests. And we're very glad you could be our first in-person, in-studio guest. Now, we met oh, a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. walking around a little art gallery. Yep, a little exhibition, a little I exhibition, would say. Yep. Yeah. From a previous podcast um, guest. That's right, with yeah, Greg, Greg Wallace, Wallace at Connected By, his official launch of his new premises. Check them out, Connected mm. By. Do a Google search for Greg Wallace. Or look in our show notes. We'll... Or yeah, do the work exactly. for you. That, that episode is wonderful. But we were walking around and I said, hey, what do you think of this art? We started talking and your story is incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Liv? Yeah, sure. So you might be able to hear that I'm not from Australia originally. So Picked I am it. from um, the UK. <laughs> and essentially I had a really beautiful upbringing and I got two sisters, twin sisters. So they had that little twinny bond and I was very content in nature. So most of my upbringing was in the countryside and I just got off and daydream and play in the garden. It was amazing. And then it all kind of um, went pear-shaped when my parents separated, unfortunately. And Mm. we had to move into the city and I'm just a country girl at heart. And that then followed with about... 15 years of um, mental health issues in and out of hospital. I'm sure um, I'm happily going to talk about that in a bit, but um, a really turbulent time. And um, coupled with really trying to grow into myself as an athlete. So I had England trials for lacrosse and I was playing a lot of different sports. Um, I was also really embracing an art kind of passion that I'd had my Mm. whole life. And then um, I decided, I think, on well, it was on a whim, I moved to Australia for a holiday, went up to Wyndham. That's a whole fun story in itself because I was going and what I thought was to Melbourne and then my mate had uh, failed to mention she's doing a remote teaching job mm. rather than her usual Melbourne teacher's job. So 45 hours later, I arrive in Wyndham and I'm like, wow, this is not the two-week holiday I thought I was in for. But something must have sparked my spirit to go, you know what, I'm going to stay. So that was 10 years ago and it's been a really interesting journey to be able to stay in the country, jump through visa hoops and... Um, yeah, just I never let go of the goal that I must stay in this country for my own mental health because I realised mm. the the darkness um, of winter in the UK and the, the cold and the wet. People mm. joke about it, but it really mm. affected me every year. And I needed to start afresh and completely reinvent myself after my really turbulent um, time in my teens and 20s. Well, can we talk about that turbulence and the 800-pound gorilla in the podcast studio? What was causal to mental health and how did it manifest itself? Yeah, so I guess being a teenage girl, you guys wouldn't know what that's about. But I have one. In fact, Tim's got two. Oh, yes. I say, oh. I now have one and we're experiencing secondhand that it's okay. <laughs> a hormonally turbulent time. Yep. I mean, I, I assume both for girls and boys going through puberty in itself can be really challenging. Absolutely. Um, on top of that, I have always struggled um, with dyslexia. So I was thankfully to my parents, they took me out of mainstream state school and put me in a private all girls school, which fantastic for my education. And I can now comfortably do the alphabet and just about, you know, <laughs> spell and write and, and read. But um, it was a really high pressured, toxic environment for me. And um, yeah, I was always in bottom group and, and struggled with that. And I'm, then, I'm envisaging one of these really sort of elite, you know, got to make the mark, lots of 
sort of keeping up with the Joneses type schools? Is, is this what we're talking about? So the Alice Otley where I went was the first school for all for girls a first all-girls school to be established in the UK. Um, it was like we were stuck at Hogwarts without the magic, <laughs> being taught by like these crusty old women who were probably nuns in a former life. And yeah. um, essentially the way that we were taught was, well, if you've got 99%, why didn't you get 100? Mm-hmm. It was never um, acknowledging what you've done well. I don't think I ever got a smiley face or a well done or a, oh, this is fantastic. It was you're going to get better by noticing your flaws. Yeah. Constantly point out your failures and therefore that is going to how how you're going to improve. So even up until probably my 30s, I'm 33 now, I have felt like a failure my whole life. Never felt like I've really been enough, never hit the mark. And I do think that's a massive flaw in the education system, especially in private schools, mm-hmm. um, is that they focus on trying to mould you by telling you what you're bad at mm-hmm. rather than... Um, Realistically, you can't you can't give everyone a gold star, but you need to also acknowledge that when the kid tries their hardest and gets something right, you need to acknowledge that because otherwise it can, yeah, just cripple your confidence. And you see that creeping excellence. I've read a lot recently about the admissions into Ivy League colleges in the US. I imagine the Oxbridge sort of pathway is the same, that you've got to be 100% as the start point and then your extracurriculars yes. and then all those other expectations, which is absolutely a hothouse, you know, it's it's cooking kids, Mm. but it's also not allowing for expression of any other kind of brilliance or any other kind of development other than that very narrow cookie cutter sort of spectrum. Yeah, I think there's a problem in that we, we give a, we prescribe how we want a child to be so it's a bit kind of like let's get everyone to look as much like as each other as they can Mm. perform in the same way come out with the same results and letting people be individuals or even letting people learn who they are as people kind of gets left by the wayside Mm. so there's so many very intelligent very skilled um, young adults that come out of the education system who are like oh I've got no idea who I am Mm. therefore I don't know how to be in this world because I'm I'm like the next person but we're all going for the same job and then when we get into that job we all have to wear a tie and we all have to you know women have to wear a suit and a skirt and the heels and it's like what about embracing teaching us to be ourselves mm. um and therefore when you don't fit in or if you find something a bit challenging or if you see something a little bit different then you have the resilience to be able to go well that's okay because I can fall back on me and my my opinions and mm. my beliefs and I can own being different without it being a problem so yeah, that in itself was a challenge. Um, and then I, um, going through puberty, was considering um, my sexuality. So I, I I did know from quite a young age that I thought I was probably gay. Um, and that was a really scary kind of realisation. Um, and then, yeah, being asked. Sorry, was that something you could talk to anyone about? Was it something that within your family, noting the separation, doesn't sound like the school would be too open to those sort of conversations? Did you have... Uh, mentors or people you could talk to about that? Um, If I did, I didn't know about them until unfortunately it was too late. So um, the school, I I did get approached by a modelling agency when I was at this roadshow, clothes show they call it in Birmingham, Um, also lost my grandparents and then possibly, I don't want to blame my parents' divorce, but just tipped it over the Mm. edge. So there was essentially five things in one year that all just kind of happened all at once and it was just too much and in terms of anorexia it's 
it can be about how you look, but essentially it's someone trying to gain control. So yeah. using food as a way to feel more secure through deprivation or over-exercise. So for me, clearly as a 12, 13-year-old, my life was pretty out of control. And mm. without knowing it, I turned to food and um, depriving myself of food. And then it was a couple of years before I was seriously, seriously ill and spent a many time, many years in hospital, actually, after that. Could we touch on that? Um, clearly, as you've just said, it's not about food. It's not mm-hmm. about looks. It's about control. And the armchair sort of perspective might be, well, how hard can this be? Just eat something. Mm. Um, can you talk to the the reluctance? Were you um, noting this is a mental illness? Were you aware at this stage what was happening to your body as a result of this? Um, and what what were the sort of drivers and forces that I guess were were sort of pushing you down this dark path? Yeah, um, that's a really good question, actually, that people have, I've never been asked that before. But um, first and foremost, I had no idea. I was, I was just sort of automatically trying to gain some element of control in my life. And then it got to a point where, unfortunately, people are like, oh, Liv, you look great. And oh, <laughs> gosh, you look, you know, so sporty. And my um, academic ability improved because I was training more. I used exercise and food as a way to lose weight. So um, that coincided with actually feeling really strong and really good and I was better at high jump and I was better at running and um, so for a short period it actually was a really positive thing (laughs) and then um, it became over time a sense of identity and sounds really messed up but I felt quite proud and I felt almost sorry for people that they didn't have a special thing even though it was an illness Mm. I I claimed it as something that I could be proud of and then when it got really really severe um, your actual brain starts to shrink and you you lose cognitive function and you do become that's when it's a severe mental illness you cannot rationalize so you know I'd tie myself up to sleep um, using my my um what's it, dressing gown cord, Mm. because I genuinely believe that if you sat down, you're a couch potato, that's just an English saying, Hmm. and if you're a couch potato, then you're fat. So I'm like, right, well, I must not ever sit down. And it sounds ridiculous, but, you know, I got um, peripheral neuropathy in my ankles, they swelled up, Um, what diabetics get, there was no circulation, because I would not sit down for weeks on end and you know the 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 blood vessels in my ankles were starting to die and um you know I'd stand up in the middle of assembly at this Hogwarts school (laughs) and all these teachers they wouldn't start assembly until I sat down but I was so defiant and determined and Mm. so controlled by I was just so ill Mm. so so ill so yeah it goes through um kind of phases and it's capturing if someone has anorexia you've got to catch it early because once your brain starts to physically change and your chemical imbalance and then you actually become Mm. mentally ill um it's very hard to to get that rational thinking back and recover was there a point where you and yourself realized that something is wrong noting that you you've sort of had the um you know that uh, i guess yearning for control and you've got it and it feels good and and you're, you're so determined not to let go of that was mm. there a catalyst at some point that that you realized no hang on this has gone too far and and i need help or was that sort of thrust upon you um unfortunately no so by the time you get ill enough to physically be a risk to your own life you get admitted to hospital mm. that is the point where you're usually um you're just so obsessively too far gone you're too far, you're way too far gone and i knew 
um, when I could wrap my my fingers around my waist and my my fingers and my thumbs would connect. That was like, yes, I've finally done it. So you you become so obsessed with these these goals when the weight dropped below thirty kg. You know all these things. Oh, it's it's horrific yeah. to think about, but it that is just your focus. So again, it it was a really messed up source of pride for mm. me at the time. And then it got to a point where I I was actually my goal was to kill myself through starvation. So no, at, at its worst, unfortunately, um, I I didn't think that there was anything wrong with me i thought the the rest of the world had a problem mm-hmm. and they were just jealous of me actually yeah which is horrific to think about thank god i'm not there anymore <laughs> <laughs> well, and thank uh, you for for sharing that so so candidly yeah. mm. and so what did that lead to um hospitalization yeah. at some point clearly yeah so um really fortunate in the uk that there is a little bit more inpatient care so here in australia there is one six bed unit that is a residential care placement for anorexia so six people in australia in australia um can get as much care as they need so they can stay they move in so um otherwise you go to kind of like the hollywoods or just down Mm -hmm. the road and um charlie's and you can get two weeks so once you're physically up to a point of health then they turf you out. Whereas in the UK, they don't do that. They, I don't they know how the they've got the funding. Yeah, so, well, they do require you to be eighty percent of your of a healthy BMI. So, mm-hmm. it took me a year to get there. So, I am fairly tall. I'm nearly six foot, and I I was about thirty five kg. So, um, horrifically skeletal, kind of death door. So, it did take me um, nearly a year to to gain the weight up to eighty percent. Sadly. I was um, let out, I was at home, I hadn't done enough work mentally. So all those behaviours and patterns came back. When I was in hospital, I knew that the only way to get out was to eat. And I mentioned before, my childhood was all about nature and sitting in, you know, I'd prop myself up to a sleeping cow and just like daydream. <laughs> Honestly, that I would, I'd love it. It's just like something out of Winnie yeah, the Pooh. Yeah, or, yeah, I yeah. was such a special kid. And, um, <laughs> and so I knew kind of a few months in the only way I'm getting out of here is to eat my way out once I get out I can I can go thing. back to it yeah. so I relapsed six months later I was back in hospital um and then it was either a friend who there was only two of us with an eating disorder in hospital it was a really unique unit where there was only over 10 patients at any one point I was so lucky and um there was children with anxiety or self-harm or other mm. other illnesses that I I still to this day don't know why they were in there but they obviously needed the care so this one girl um she passed away so we she she was in hospital before me got out before I did and then she went back in when I was out I returned and um I was told she was she was no more so I think that jolted something Mm. in me um and there's a tiny spark that must remain of someone's spirit when they are overcome with a mental illness, whether it's alcoholism, addiction, whatever the problem might be. You don't you don't always lose yourself. I do believe that you there's a tiny part of you. I've got blue eyes, but when I was unwell, my my eyes went completely grey. There was no colour in my eyes at all. Um, and when I was the second time something switched I can't tell you what but something switched and the color came back in my eyes Mm. and that was before I left hospital and then um yeah I mean it was that was the start of recovery and it was probably 10 years after that that I can safely say 
anorexia is a, is a former life. It's actually a former person. Yep. So I had to completely, which is a one of the biggest blessings and opportunities I've ever had, is that to unlearn anorexia and live as a non-anorexic person, I had to unlearn all my beliefs, all my all my thoughts mm-hmm. about myself, and it's a, like a blank slate. So I've often said this: when you're when you're a baby, you're born as a blank slate. You don't have any beliefs, you don't have any preconceptions, you don't have any really any thoughts, and as you grow up, you inherit those from mm-hmm. society, from your parents, from school. Um, and then I realized at some stage I could choose. Well, not only could I choose, but I had to. I had to choose what belief systems are going to best serve me and enable me to live a healthy life. So if someone in society said, you know, actually being a size 10 is the optimum for a woman, well, bullshit. Mm. I don't want to have to live by that rule or um, going to the gym three times a week or, you know, these are very superficial sure, things. Sure. But essentially, I had to rewrite an optimal lifestyle for a person and then I had to go and live that life. So I, I knew nothing. I was, I was almost like a child in an adult's body learning how to live again. And that is why now I make sure every day is full of nourishing things, healthy belief systems. I'm, I'd say I'm a very happy person. I um, embrace every minute. And it's because I don't fall in for the trap of the normal societal kind of pressures. Mm. I've, I've actually learned to let go of anything that doesn't serve me. And I've, I've curated, I've created this person that hopefully is the best version I can be of myself. It's such a cool reflection that you've just made. I'm fascinated by this idea of identity, you know, the, mm-hmm. <clears throat> pardon me, the philosophical concept of, you know, how we see ourselves. And I think most of us feel that we don't have a say in it. And of course mm. you do. Yep. And you need to, you use the word curate. I, I'm increasingly of the belief you need to filter what comes in and be aware of how you're processing and how you're accepting that sort of information. And in many ways, there is an element where we can choose certainly what we expose ourselves to, but also um, the way we process it and the way we choose to to incorporate that into our identity. It's mm. amazing to hear how positively you've been able to do that. It's quite interesting. I, I'm just thinking of a I, I was friends with a doctor and I was working at a um, gym and she worked a funny shift and we always had three hours in the day and we love tennis. So we play tennis. Anyway, she took me to her end of year. She did a dissertation in dermatology and they had a little party and she wanted to drink and I don't drink. I've never I've never drank alcohol and I drove and we arrived in her soft top car and, you know, I had a beaten up old Corsa. I did not <laughs> have that car. But she said, what are you going to tell people you do? And that was in my mid twenties, and I thought, shit, I could be, I could be whoever I want. No one's <laughs> going to question it. And for the whole night, I said I was a neurosurgeon, and <laughs> it backfired because then they're like, "Great, you can buy all the drinks." And I was like, "Shit, that, <laughs> that didn't work." But when I came to Australia, I had the same realization. Nobody knows me. I'm completely starting my life again. I can be whoever I want. And I can let go of my past. And it's only in the last few years that I've started to talk about it because I didn't need to own anorexia anymore. I didn't need to be a part of my identity. I could be the sporty, arty, whoever. I could be anyone. And Mm. and no one's going to question that. So I think there comes a point in your life when you can go, actually, am I the person I want to be? Or 
can I be brave and let go of some things in life and completely reinvent myself? Why mm. not? I mean, people do it. This is a whole other conversation, but trans people, you know, they yeah. live their whole lives as someone else and then they've they've grown into themselves. We don't need to be that extreme, but why can't you why can't you try something new or take on a new role or a job or just reinvent yourself is it's really fun. Look, I agree and and part of that sort of philosophical concept of identity there's a wonderful model where it talks about, you know, you've got a biological identity, mm-hmm. you know, your fingerprints and your eyes and your mm-hmm. your body parts, you've got a biographical identity, the bit you tell yourself, and then you've got a social identity, the bit you project to the other world. They don't always overlap and often mm-hmm. they have, there's market difference. And I always think about people like uh, a trans individual or, as you mentioned, someone who knows their sexuality is going, is different to, to what society may expect of them in a certain context. There's a big difference between, say, that social identity and the, the biographical or even the biological identity. And I think we have got power to, to sort of choose, well, I'm going to own this. And I, I just reckon that's a really interesting concept. I, th- I suspect a lot of mental health maybe a lot's too strong, but many mental health issues are because people are trying so hard to fit into what they think society expects of them. And there's a freedom in, there's so much freedom. And I could let go of anxiety. I was on medication for 10 years. I was depressed, I was suicidal, I was anxious. I could let go of that because what I was anxious over was trying to please others, was trying to get the right job. I felt like I was... um, I felt guilty for wasting my education. My parents had spent all this money on my private school education. I just wanted to be an artist. Mm. but Didn't want to be a wizard. No, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to be Hermione Granger. Thank you very much. So, um, yeah, I think being brave to say, actually, that's what you do. And I'm not judging that. Everyone can do what they want, obviously, without causing harm to society. But it doesn't serve me anymore. And I don't, my partner's just given up drinking. She had her six months kind of drink-free day yesterday. I'm so proud of her. And that was her choice. Um, and, you know, for a, a, the start, she's a lawyer. So there's lots of business lunches. And it was all very, ooh, what are you doing? Are you having another baby? No, please, thanks. We've got four already. <laughs> you don't need that. But, um, yeah, why not? Like, and now she's so happy. And, and people know that she doesn't drink at functions. Yeah. And it's like, cool. Liz can just be, and it, she's inspiring some of her friends. So mm. I just think it has a really positive knock-on effect when you live authentically and are not afraid to kind of think outside the box. I, I look around and I feel so lost inside. And I, I look around and I can't make Can't I fit in and still be myself? I try to calm myself by slowly breathing in. You could say that when you had the illness, you were determined and very disciplined, and you Mm. could say the same now. Mm. And we were talking yesterday about Dr. Ali Crum at Stanford Uni who talks about mindset, and she was a pro athlete. And she says, often we think about mindset as if it can only be positive. But yep. no, no, it can tip you into the negative. Mm-hmm. And she uses her own example of overtraining. Like yep. when everyone had finished um, you know, training session, she'd go back into the gym or run more mm-hmm. laps and to the point where she just got injured. Do you think that some of this is due to mindset? 
the, uh, yeah. the unhealthy end of mindset? Um, one thing my mum said to me, and it probably saved my life. She's I owe my life to mum in so many <laughs> over so many examples. I can think of so many examples, but she said to me, sweetheart. If you put the passion, commitment and determination mm. you have to starving yourself, over-exercising, running outside in the rain in your underwear, standing up for months on end, just imagine if you harness that mm. and put it to good. Mm. And now I understand what she meant. I've got goosebumps thinking about it, actually. But I understood what she meant. At the time, I, I, it didn't, fell on deaf ears. But now I'm like, oh my gosh, she's so right. Because mm. I do live with passion. And I think, I think people... Actually, this is a conversation for another time. I've never really understood why some people have that get up and go and grit and resilience and determination and, mm -hmm. and you know, that extra oomph, whereas other people are more content just living kind of a very, um, very whole life existence, but without pushing boundaries. So that's, I'm, I'm still learning and figuring that one out. But yeah, I think overcoming the adversity and having to go through that experience I, I know that I've done that, mm. so I can put that very negative experience. Um, I know I've got it in me, and I can put it towards positive. Mm. You said something wonderful a couple of weeks ago. You said, I've left Live V1.0 behind mm. and Live 2.0 I can actually start to love. Mm. Could you talk about that transition, leaving 1.0 behind and what 2.0 is? Yep. Um, People have asked me many times, how did you do it? Like, how did you overcome it? So 40% of people who succumb to anorexia, unfortunately, won't make it. They die. 40% of people live with it on and off their whole lives. There's 20% of people who can rid it, can can live without it. So that's scary, scary numbers. And when you've been hospitalized for two years, you've had it for 10, being in that 20% is pretty, pretty low. But one thing I... It's a very simple switch is I decided rather than doing everything I could to punish myself, I would do everything I could to love myself. So every morning I had to wake up and I, I wrote it down. I had to go, is this going to be an action that is going to punish me or is um, can I make it an action that it turns into something that's going to nurture me? Starving myself, is that going to punish me? Or maybe trying to have a little mouthful of, of this piece of food, is that going to nourish me? So somewhere along the line, when I decided I wanted to live, I don't know what made me decide that, the only way that I was going to live was to go, right, I need to love myself. Every single action, and it felt weird, like it's weird, it's hard for people to accept love and it's hard even to accept a compliment for some people, let alone give it to yourself. But um, that's how I live my life now. Do Am I doing this out from a place of love or am I doing this from a place of um, beating myself up? So no judgment for people that train like loads and loads and loads and loads. But if you're tired and you've had a really big day um, at work and you've still got to get the kids homework sorted and you've still got, you know, do you really have to go to the gym? Or is it more loving and more kind to yourself to go, actually, I'm just going to put my feet up and watch my favourite trashy TV show. And I'm going to benefit from doing that more. Am I going to benefit? The, I think it's just awareness. It all comes down to awareness. So when I, it goes back to what you were saying about was there a point when I knew I was harming myself and I knew I was really ill? I didn't. But it, within the process, my sense of awareness is probably the most of anyone I know. It really infuriates <laughs> people close to me because like, damn it, why are you so aware? Like you just know, you know me and you know yourself. And I've just... It's having, it's stopping to have awareness mm. and then going, right, 
is this truly going to be an act of love to myself or hate to myself? Mm. And it's usually one or the other. Mm. It's very, very rarely sits in, in between. Yeah. Guard. Let's, yes. Cause I'll pack my bags and I'll run too fast. I'll follow my plans, I won't be held back. I'm not going to hide this time. I will fight and I'm gonna try and I'll get so high and I'll try and I'll try and I'll try, but I won't give up. studied for me? Yes. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Um, sure. I've got a, I guess, a relatively strong interest, but a very shallow knowledge of mm-hmm. art from a formal sense. So you did a fine arts program? I did. I did um, a diploma first. Mm-hmm. So I'm really sporty, really arty. So I went to New Zealand for a year. It was a gap year. Um, that was a bit of a write-off. I was still quite unwell. Then I did a year coaching cricket and lacrosse Mm -hmm. and um, rowing and just in the sports department and I did a diploma on the side just because I was like well I've got all this time I'm Mm. part-time coaching then I did a degree in art I was actually going to do a degree in sports science much to my mother's absolute disgust I changed two weeks before (laughs) I rang the only uni that offered both sport and art I was like sorry can I change my mind and they (laughs) never had that at the uni before but ended up doing a degree in art and playing rugby semi-professionally the weirdest combination you know people yeah. would be like smoking their weed with their <laughs> hemp trousers just like rocking it out at art college and i'm like running in from rugby i thought training. you were gonna say that's the rugby crew no, no. That's that. <laughs> sadly not um so three years self-directed really um i'm it's a bit of a shame but i didn't go to my graduation because i felt embarrassed i, I kind of felt and this is where i was at my headspace yeah. But I felt well, it's not really a proper degree, so I can't celebrate this. So I did get a degree in fine art, specialising in sculpture. Mm-hmm. Um, specialising loose, like just conceptualise. I just did bits of log, essentially, yep. and just put some conceptual rubbish to it and you <laughs> end up getting an art degree. But the degree was amazing. They had a foundry. They had um, printmaking workshops. They had studios like this. You could do um, videos and stuff. Mm. So um, it was a really... Yeah, it was a really indulgent few years. And I think it's the case for many students. It was more about me growing into myself. And it just so happened I got to play rugby at the highest level and get a degree at the end of it. Very cool. What piece of art has moved you the most in your life? Hmm. Oh, gosh. I have never been asked that. That's amazing. 
You just saw an incredible piece of I art. Did. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I don't imagine that would yeah, have moved too much, <laughs> except then in the opposite I'm direction. I'm still speechless <laughs> from that experience seeing your and that, painting. That piece of art is Ben's painting of me, which hangs pride of place in the office and yeah. is colloquially known as Dear Leader. Looms is probably a better verb <laughs> for what <laughs> yeah, that thing does. Looms. Yeah, I'm still moved by that. I did a hypnotherapy session. I did many different forms of therapy when I was trying to recover. And something that I, it was a sketch actually, that I did um, really moved me in a very jarring way. And I was in the process of being, I was hypnotized at the, in the time. So it was only when I kind of came around that I saw it and it just made me burst into tears. And I, maybe, I've never thought about it, that might have helped to kind of kickstart my recovery. But it was essentially of like a demon-like figure in a box with jarring spine and all the bones. And um, I can still very clearly see it now. And, and obviously that was me painting myself and how the anorexia was trapping me in this box. Um, yeah, not a beautiful <laughs> memory, but I can. that's the, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that yeah. question. Because I'm, I'm intrigued by the, the power of art. I mean, it's mm. kind of a, like from a functional perspective, Art in general is a is a useless sort of endeavour. Yeah. You imagine when the the machines take over, there probably won't be art for art's sake. And in that sense, it's very much a, a very human uh, sort of endeavour and passion. And and it it I, I find it really interesting how different people can um, find affinity with different pieces or be mm-hmm. moved by different pieces. It, it, yeah, it's, there's something very special about that. Yeah. There's actually a painting I bought, and it's so special for two reasons. It's Lucy Bennett, and it's just called Red Satin Pants, and it's a lino print, and it's, or maybe it's a different kind of print. It is a print, and it is a simple outline of the female form, just the perfect curve under the cleavage, and then you've just got this one line at the bottom that represents, you can see it's the top of the red satin pants. And I saw it in Henley. Uh, I was helping at a rowing regatta, and I walked in and I, I don't think I had shoes on because I'd just been in the river like mm. hauling out the boats. And this lady pulls her glasses down just below her nose, sort of looks me up and down and is like, hi. <laughs> I'm like, don't patch you bitch. I was so offended. <laughs> and I looked, I looked like a student and yeah. I just looked rough as anything. I said, I'll take that one, please. <laughs> and she was like, mm-hmm, okay. I was like, no, no, I'd like to buy that one, please. And, she's, and she just told me the price. I went and got the cash straight away, put it like, firmly on the desk I was like thanks I'll come back and collect it later and it was like fuck you because <laughs> that real of pretty woman sort of yeah. yeah and I look at that and I it's a figure of a strong beautiful female form but it's what it represents and that was me That's going cool. you know what fuck it I'm not going to be judged by how I look or how I present and by your stuffy stupid gallery mm. um yeah, it was a really powerful moment. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And and from what you've just described in terms mm-hmm. of all that expectation, pressure and all that stuff that you'd been through, what a, a great, I guess, manifestation of that kind of liberation yeah. and the, the start of Live 2.0. And I think that's why art does speak to people because it will it will speak to a personal experience that they've had, which is I'm always amazed when people buy my art. I always want to know why, mm. always. So actually I just sold a blue nude that I did, a beautiful, huge life-size um I say beautiful, not because I did it, but just I appreciate the <laughs> yeah, yeah, female yeah. form. But I was like, oh, why? Who got it and why? Yeah. I've always wanted to know that. But you, it doesn't really matter. It's just that it will speak to them on an emotional level, I think, is when it's successful. A lot of your work is female form. Is that inspiring for you? It's interesting you say that. Actually, it's mostly 
um, ocean stuff. Mm. I've been asked a lot, do you do anything other than whales? Yeah, I can paint anything. I don't. It doesn't have to be a massive whale on the side of your house. Um, I do. I do obviously appreciate the female form just for the lines and the curves. Mm. And I do think that it is a shape that is appreciated by both men and women. And that was just a recent exhibition I had was, it was called Blue Nudes. So it was mm. a whole array of nudes. Ah, okay, okay. Um, so that's probably most noticeable on my on my sort of social media and stuff. But I love the color blue. I love anything that is movement. I love nature. Mm. I paint anything, yeah. So you uh, recently worked for an ultra high net worth individual. Mm. You called it a random job and mm. you're a wellness coach. And you told me a story inside that portfolio of work mm. where you inspired workforce mm -hmm. to go and paint a mural in a stairwell. Yep. Why did you do that and what was the impact? I did it because I created a initiative, No Lifts November. So my job was to create well-being in the office space and I think outside the box I'm an artist and I wanted them to use the stairs instead of the lifts so no lifts November cool work for a few days and then people got slipped back into old habits or stopped doing it so I thought right well let's put something on the stairs let's make people want to go up the stairs um, and then I thought right well I don't need to do it why don't I get the staff to do it so I invited over three weeks the 500 staff that worked there, each team, to come at lunchtime and paint three life-size murals of whale sharks and baby turtles and um, just a shark, I think, or a whale. Yeah, some other creature. And I'd been asking to do this for about six months from my employer, my boss, and I wasn't really getting any traction. I did a few designs and it wasn't going anywhere. And they left the country and I thought, well, fine, I'll just do it. They're hardly ever going to use these stairs. And if they do, well, then <laughs> let's just hope they like it. So a bit, bit audacious, but I just went ahead and, and did it. And the impact is that still to this day, I left that job um, almost a year ago. I still get people sending a selfie or live. I This is my bit or that was the best. And I wish you were still here. And it was, And people, even in the moment, making a mark, leaving a mark on the building and feeling like I've created something. Essentially, they just did a brush stroke. It was just a bit of blue here, a bit of white here. Some of it is covered over by me because I <laughs> didn't do the best job, but they don't need to know that. You know, they they were part of something outside of themselves that will, mm -hmm. that will remain. And I love that I don't think my bosses know that it's there. I love that it's mm -hmm. kind of a secret between the staff and... Um, the upfall is people use the stairs far more. It's very which cool. It's really cool. And we were talking before we came on air, part of what I find, um, you know, the, the concept of artist therapy, part of the, the benefit I find is you get that tangible sort of artifact at the end, you know, the, yeah. the process I, I find wonderfully meditative and I think it's really therapeutic and all that sort of stuff. But you also get something at the end that you've done and yeah. you, you can sort of point to and, you know, generally it's terrible in my case, but, you know, there's something uh, as an output that not only stands alone as a, as a piece, but also represents what you were going through at the time or, or what was happening. And that, I think, is an added benefit. And is that something that you sort of actively tap into in your current role, sort of using artist therapy? To, for me, the process comes first and foremost. And the, the end result is less of a 
selling point or less of a, the reason for doing it. How, that being said, I'm starting to notice, especially with children, I've been working a bit with schools and we do happy hugs on the floor. And I've started to realise when they see the hug, you know, weeks, months later, I've done it around my primary school that I live opposite. It is so cute. And in that instance, I did the hugs, but... What is a happy hug, sorry? Oh, it's just an initiative I created where it's essentially a smiley face on the floor with these little stick arms <laughs> and these hands. And, um, and, the ima- and I put happy hug and, under some of them. And there's times I've looked out the window and there's a kid going, Mum, Mum, it's a hug, quick. And they like run over and they do a hug or this dog's getting like strangled <laughs> by the owner because the kid's like, quick. And I've done them all around a primary school. And since I did that two years ago with Melville Arts um, Movement, they, I got a grant and I've approached other primary schools. And in that instance, the actual after effect is more powerful. Like the doing it is great for the kids, but the constant seeing it is a constant reminder. Yeah, yeah. The hugs represent helping unity and growth. So <laughs> I hope that they remember that. But even if they just see it and it makes them smile... That Even has if a it lasting makes effect. someone get a hug, I yeah. mean that, that's a, a positive. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about process, and in particular, I'm interested in picking your brains about the technical process. Mm-hmm. When I first started drawing, I thought it was all passion, and you you had a gift, and you could just draw. And particularly, I love portraiture, and um, I thought that was just something innate that you got. But of course, as I got into it, I recognised it's very technical, mm. and um, you do a lot of mural work. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in your process of the the sort of technical aspects. How do you get something from an A4 page onto Mm. the massive side of a building? Oh, God, I don't want to share this. I am probably the least technically (laughs) (laughs) in terms of I'm not clinical. My art teacher will vouch for this. I am just like, just go for it. Don't actually. So now I'm getting to a point where I'm I'm pitching for bigger works and on the side of kind of bigger buildings and they want a design beforehand I'm like God, I don't know I just wing it, make it like, as I, I literally make it up as I go along mm. and I've seen some people project some people use a kind of squiggle underneath and yeah. they map their mural on top I'm going to have to start to learn that process but yeah. as an artist that's where I think there is a little bit of a a gift or a, just a natural ability and that I don't actually think about it I just kind of go with the flow and the happy accidents usually the best so mm. a roller you're supposed to kind of stand above it if you're painting on the floor and just roll back and forth I've started to use the roller to do lines work or I'll just like put my hand in it and smudge that against the wall so I'm not I don't go by the book and but that's more flow yeah. flowing and, and a d- bit different and I think that's just through you know essentially two decades or more of working with paint I'm confident to just kind of get experiment with yeah I'm almost like in a trance when I really get in the flow the flow state yeah absolutely but um yeah I think but actually I would say letting go of the constraints of a really precise technical that's why I'm not a sign writer because (laughs) I'm not neat yeah but that works for people that work with kind of logic and line and Mm. and patterns whereas I'm just I get lost in the process yeah yeah and the one thing I love about mural work and and I think it's hitting a bit of a a strap around the world Mm. I mean you've got some of these pieces you can walk two blocks in Perth and see world-class art yeah Mm. And it's just there for everyone. I mean, Roan's got an amazing piece on the Western. Mm. Uh, there's obviously the Adnate Hotel here, and Adnate has 
got a bunch of stuff around Australia, mm. some really iconic sort of work, a lot in Melbourne as well. And it's just there, 24 hours a day. And you, I walk to the train station, you pass what I consider a masterpieces, and they're free and universal and accessible. Mm. And I, I think it, it, it adds colour, obviously, but I, I reckon it, it makes people happy. It makes the artist happy. Well, it certainly makes me happy. The main thing I see my art as is a gift. Mm. I've just done a mural on the side of a primary school near me, and it's where I fill up my petrol, I fill up my car with petrol. I look across and I think, oh, I'm so, I'm so grateful that I get to gift this. This is my offering. This is a little slice of me and my creativity, and I get to, I get to maybe make a kid smile or a mm. parent go. Nice, and you know, forget about the stresses of trying to be a parent, just even for a second, because they're looking at a nice color on a wall. Like, I just love that what I do is essentially a gift every time to whoever sees it. I think that's really cool. What's your dream for art and your involvement in it? My dream is to inspire, educate, and inform people through the creative process. Mm-hmm. That is what I really, I just want to empower people with art whether that's they see a mural and they see a painting and it, it sparks something in them, whether they create something themselves and it makes them grow in confidence or it makes them pick up a passion that they didn't know they had. Um, like the the way that my hypnotic kind of drawing negatively moved me, mm. now I'm very positively moved by art and I just see there's so much power in art. And if I can share that, create awareness of the power of art is 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 my dream and there's ways many ways to do that and I'm still finding out is it through delivering art lessons is it through putting a mural on the wall is it through doing one-on-one art therapy is it talking to people like you guys and then maybe someone will go oh I might go to the gallery this weekend like I don't know the best way to put that out there but I'm just doing it in all the ways I can think of would you ever have your own gallery yes yep I'd love that. Could you be this snooty lady looking down bifocals? <laughs> <laughs> you can't afford that. Glass. Yeah, everyone must take their shoes off before they come in because <laughs> yeah. um, that's a British and, thing. And would you and have those, you know, the little post-it notes next to the painting, you know, you break, you buy, no touching. There would be a price on application sticker. <laughs> oh, yes. yeah. God, they're annoying. Yeah, so, it, absolutely. Just have the prize, like stuff it. Yeah, um, no, that would be absolute opposite of what I'd have. I'd have bean bags and people can skate in. There'd be a little half pipe on the side or there'd be a zone as well where people can paint themselves so I'm doing an event next weekend where people bit of a plug guys if it gets out before next weekend um (laughs) to come and paint my caravan so I'm doing open studios in Melville and my studio is a converted caravan and I had it all painted and graffitied with by mates and I've completely turned it back white and I've want the the public to come and repaint it but a, a gallery I want it to be kind of engaging and and inclusive and messy and mm. bright and fun mm. and spark the imagination so yeah it's a work in progress so you're not you're not going to stencil anything to create a theme it'll just be whatever it is don't know who knows okay. i've right. kind of winged it through life and it seems to be working out all right now so i just keep going with that <laughs> look where it's got you method. into a shower cubicle yeah, with know. two blokes I've always wanted to be. That's so <laughs> out of context that would have sounded weird um, but part of what you've described is part of what I think I love and I don't think I appreciated before getting into art myself. It can often be seen as a very exclusive um, mm. sort of environment, you know, the galleries that you don't want to go into because you're not, you don't understand art or, you know, even public art galleries where you walk around and think, 
why is that picture there because I, I don't understand it or my five-year-old could have done it or whatever. And I do think there has been a bit of an elitism and a bit of an mm-hmm. exclusivity built around this idea of art. And the, the question I was going to ask before we went on that thread is kind of linked. What advice would you give to someone who wants to try to get into art but just doesn't even know where to start because of those sort of reasons? Yeah, it's a great question because I was that person only in September last year. I was in wellness my whole life. I was doing massage, personal training, very comfortable in that career. But the what stopped me was I didn't know what was possible. And it was only when I thought, for goodness sake, Livy, if you, if you get to 35 and you haven't followed your passion, um, then you're too late. So I took that jump. There is so much. There is, it's incredible. There's not enough time for everything. If you want to teach art, you can. If you want mm. to be an art curator, if you want to create a cool gallery that isn't all stuffy and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. quiet, if you want to be um, an, an artist as a online artist doing NFTs, if you want to <laughs> um, you know, be an art collector, and, and there's so many ways you can do art. And this year, I've given myself one year to try as much as I can. So I'm, I'm teaching a little bit. I'm doing art therapy. I'm doing um, team building in a corporate setting. Mm. I'm doing murals. I'm, I've had a show. I'm doing um, commissions. And through the process of giving it all a go, I've naturally realized that my there's two standouts, the murals and the creative team building. And now I'm now I've I'm kind of halfway through that year of experimentation. I can put more energy and time into just those two things, and then hopefully by the end of the year, I'll be established to be able to go. Cool, that's where I want to take it. But one thing that is beautiful is there's so much opportunity, but there's also some lovely people that have been in the industry who have helped me to feel a bit more confident. They've kind of instead of hiding their their knowledge and kind yeah. of like, this is my patch go yeah, away yeah. um some beautiful artists that have really inspired me so um it's a cool industry to be in yeah. i'm glad i made the leap don't give away the art therapy yet maybe because we'd love to collaborate we've talked about some of that art to buttress your resilience a question to both of you i i've never picked up a pen or a mm. paintbrush i think i'd suck at art although you write poetry that's true that's true mm. badly Performance art, you, you carry on a lot. Slam poetry. <laughs> that's, true, that's true. But what about what about yeah. art to buttress resilience? Do you want to start then? Well, I mean, for me personally, I didn't realise at the time, but it's it's meditation. Yeah. Um, you used the term flow before, and mm-hmm. and I find uh, ex- almost that sort of chick sent me high definition of flow state. You know, you lose track of time, totally absorbed in what you're doing. There's a challenge there from the technical perspective, but not so much that you're overwhelmed. I mean, all of those boxes are ticked for me by uh, art. And and for me as well, it was that um, idea of learning something, of being bad at something, you know, the beginner's eyes type approach and getting better was was also because I was so good at everything else. (laughs) 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 I don't know where I was going with that, but it it was something I I very much, it didn't come naturally, but it it was good to to work in progress. So all of those things, I found it, um, you know, I got into it before we started the the full study research for the book, but it definitely ticked a lot of those um, resilience boxes. Mm. I definitely agree with the meditation element and then you can step out of the problem after you've been a bit creative. It quietens the mind. It lets you just kind of take a breath and and take stock of uh, from a bigger picture perspective. On a personal level, when I was in hospital, I was given a task by my art teacher to fill one page of my sketchbook every day. And 
what I don't think I realized at the time, but what I now know is that it was a way of expressing my emotion, getting my feelings mm-hmm. out on the page and letting go of some of the pain I was in and the hurt. So that's where art therapy can really help you get rid of whatever it is that's causing the need to be resilient. It's it's getting it out. And then now my art is really bright and happy and colorful and because mm. that's because I don't really have much I need to get out anymore. But for years, it was a way of releasing some of the trauma that was then I didn't need to be as resilient to deal with all the shit because it was out of me on mm. the page. Have you still got that sketchbook? Yeah. Yeah, it's up in my... I actually... It was up in my dad's. I um, went to the tip. So in the UK, you don't have to pay to dump your lug, um, luggage, your waste anywhere. There's just a local tip in every village. So I packed the car and drove there and dad ran down <laughs> down the street. He's like this seven-foot embarrassing man he looks like postman pat reincarnated but anyway he's running <laughs> and he's like twinks he calls me twinks he's like twinks stop what are you doing i was like no dad cleanse getting rid of it no this is an old me i don't want to have it and he's like no and he saved a few bits because the tips are underground they're just like this big hole in the ground you just throw it in and i was cathartically just like fuck you anorexia just so <laughs> I, not allowed to swear, but just throwing it over the side and luckily dad's a cricketer and it's like this sketch this comedy sketch he's like grabbing these things and anyway he convinced me to just hold on to a few so that is one of the because I filled my whole, the whole attic of my dad's house with art over the years. I was just mm. a machine, creating, mm. creating, creating all the time. So I needed to get rid of some of it. But yeah, he he thought I was going to rid of, I was, was going to rid, rid of my life of all of that phase. So thanks, Dad. Sport and fitness. Mm. I think you raced off to play golf the other day. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> talked about cricket and yeah. lacrosse, rowing, rugby, rugby, rowing. Yeah, skateboarding. Skateboarding, That's exactly. You. you fell off your skateboard today. Yeah. Oh. I no, I landed fine. It was a bit of a wobble, but I yeah. don't, I don't fall off. <laughs> are you trying to insinuate? No, yeah. <laughs> well, what are you doing? What do you, what do you enjoy doing in your own time? Mm. So it took a lot of years to get the healthy balance between why asking why am I doing this? So that's a, a guess with the alignment of awareness is why do you do what you do? Is it coming from a place of love or punishment? So I realised I just bloody love sport. Mm. I don't go to a gym. Sorry, coach. (laughs) What? Um, I haven't been to a gym in about six years. I exercise because I love it. It's Mm. a social thing for me. I'm in nature. I'm not that competitive. I just love moving my body. So um, I do anything and everything. I just love sport. I do basketball on a Monday, cardio tennis on a Tuesday, Wednesday's lacrosse, Thursday's lacrosse. I'll fit in a skate, a couple of runs, blah, 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 whatevs. Um, what I don't do is measure anything. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have a Fitbit. Sorry, sisters, they bought me a GoPro for my 30th. <laughs> I've never used it. Because um, I don't do it for that reason. I'm doing it because I love being out there, mm. feeling healthy, feeling strong. Kind of helps. I've still got enough of a kind of talent so that I can still play a competitive level. But, um, yeah, so I'll do it all. So we won't find you on Strava? On Strava, what's that? <laughs> good answer. <laughs> good answer. Yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, what about music? On the Unforgiving Sixty podcast, we have the Unforgiving Sixty playlist on Spotify. Oh yeah. Uh, where we capture our guests' power songs. Do you have a power oh song? Gosh. Something that you want to go a bit harder and yeah, you, you um, reach. 
reach for that song? It's a bit of Tina Turner, um, <laughs> old school. Yeah. Um, I want to dance with somebody or okay. we don't need another hero. Because I was actually running around in the rain yesterday. I was smiling. It was so fun because it was like I was back in the UK. <laughs> and I thought, right, I'm going to get home before the rain comes. Obviously, one minute later, it's like, <laughs> drenched. And just smile because she's so kind of passionate and I mm. love a good ballad and the female voice. So anything by her really is... Yeah, it just gets your spirit going. We don't have Tina Turner on the playlist oh, yet. Sorry. We will be joining <laughs> Definitely Tina get Turner that. will be joining all of the other artists yeah. on the Unforgiving Sixty playlist on Spotify. Way. Mm. It's Mum been loves that too. So good to have you. Oh, Absolutely. It's been my and pleasure. we are super keen to pursue a collaboration. Watch this space. Fantastic. We've got a little bit of funding from Department of Veterans Affairs to do something creative mm. on a resilience retreat. You might just see Liv again. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> be very cool. Thank you so much, guys. It's been great. Great yeah. to see you. Fantastic. I know you're waiting for me. I know I'm being a coward. Why don't you follow your dreams? Why do you follow your father? Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run. 
the truth is ever